Folks, it's good uh, to be here with all of you. I'm excited about the time we're going to spend together, the next 45 minutes-ish. Um, uh, Matt got in touch with me, I think about three months ago, to come and be a part of the things you guys are doing here this summer, and I was eager to say yes and eager to um, kind of participate in, in the things you guys are doing. And let me just say, uh, I, I want to put my take my hat off to um, the leadership of this church for being willing to put this on, Toby and Matt and um, the rest of the folks who sort of dreamed this up. Um, this is a rare thing, and it's a real gift that your church would offer something like this. And I want to say just uh, applaud all of you as well for coming out on, what day is it today? A Tuesday night uh, for listening to some boring theology. So um, you guys are clearly the most dedicated group in the entire church. Um, as you can tell, I don't hail from these parts. My accent gives it away. I'm from the United States, what some of you call the colonies. And, um, <laughs> but I, as Zoe mentioned earlier, I've, I've, been, I've been around quite a bit, and, and so I've spent a good bit of time in the States in, in ministry and in teaching in different kinds of settings and contexts there and here and, and other places as well. Um, Normally, I would do a bit more introduction about myself, but we have a lot of ground to cover tonight, so we are just going to dive into it. Um, I'm going to, as you can see, we're talking tonight about what some might consider to be a relatively important topic within the Christian faith, something called the Trinity. Oh, good. This is now working for me. So my guess is that for most of you... And there, there'll be some of you who've never maybe heard the word Trinity before, um, and you're going, this is brand new. This is, I didn't realize that was part of the Christian thing, and that's fine. You might just to be sorting things out. But for most of you, I would guess that hearing about the Trinity is not, is not new information for you. You come in here already with some ideas about what the Trinity is, partly because my guess is, is you read your Bible some, and you've noticed they talk about God. They talk about the Father, and they talk about the Son, and they talk about the Spirit. And so you're putting things together. Go, wait a minute. This whole God thing is a little more complicated than just God. Um, or some of your songs that you sing will oftentimes invoke the Father or the Son or the Spirit. Or sometimes, if you come from a certain kind of church tradition, you would be a part of uh, something like reciting what's called a creed at times, and where they're clearly talking about, at different points, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So my guess is, when we kind of put the Trinity up here, that this isn't, you're not coming in here as a blank slate. You already have a little bit of information. This isn't a new idea. But I'm willing to venture a guess that you haven't spent that much time thinking about, is it really that important? The doctrine that, how important is the doctrine of the Trinity? I mean, does my faith change that much if I kind of am full on sort of understanding the Trinity and reciting creeds about the Trinity and making sure I understand kind of the relation from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? So you might be a little bit skeptical about it. Um, another, I'm just going to put this up here. This is a quick summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. You can look at that. My guess is, I'll read it for you, it's there on the screen, but I know you love it when people read things to you that are on a screen. It says, the one God exists eternally as three persons. I've got persons there in quotes, 
Um, you might want to ask me that about that later. Uh, why would I have persons in quotes? There's some pro persons is a, is a bit of a tricky language there. Uh, and then I've spelled out who those persons might be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's what the doctrine of the Trinity wants to affirm. Each of those persons of the Trinity, fully God. Fully God. And yet, only one God. That is the quickest summary of the Trinity that you can get. For some of you, you might be thinking, that's about all I need for tonight, and you'll be excused. You can walk out the door, and I don't think anyone would, would complain. If you're interested a little more, though, on what's going on there, then we might press a little further. Um, there's, like I said, there's, I think you can look at that and go, yeah, I kind of believe that. I, I think I was told to believe that, and so I believe that, but I'm not quite sure why it's important to get it all nailed down. If you are thinking maybe the doctrine of the Trinity isn't like the most exciting thing, like waking you up every morning, you're not alone. You're among a large group of people who just aren't quite sure what the relevance of the doctrine of the Trinity is. There was a chap, this fellow here, his name's, I won't ask you to pronounce it, his name's Albrecht Ritchell, and he guesses on where this gentleman hails from. It's kind of a German-sounding name, isn't it? Here's the deal on theology. Anytime you're thinking, like, who, who are we talking about now? A decent guess is that they're a German uh, in, individual. So Albert Ritchel, German theologian from the 19th century, here's what he says. The Articles of the Creed, he was very skeptical about the doctrine of the Trinity. He said, the Articles of the Creed about the Trinity and the person of Christ are incomprehensible to the understanding. The very fact that they are pronounced unintelligible forbids their being viewed as other than worthless for the faith which consists in trust. Notice here, key words. The Trinity, incomprehensible, unintelligible, worthless for the faith. Now, no one in the room would be brave enough to say, yeah, I pretty much think that too. But you might harbor some doubts about whether or not it really is that important. Yeah, the Trinity's complicated. Even the people who study it a very, very long time get to the end of their intellectual and spiritual resources and say, yeah, I still don't know. I'm not quite sure I get it. And if the smartest people who spend years studying this stuff get to the end of that and say, yeah, I don't quite fully understand the Trinity, then most other folks are saying, well, then why bother at all? Why get started on the journey at all? Now, I don't want to leave you there. There is another opinion about this. Throw up another guy who has some opinions about it. His name's Hermann Bavink. If you were to guess German, you would be wrong at this point. Sorry to sear you wrong at the outset there. Hermann Bavink was a Dutch theologian right around the same time of this ritual guy, maybe a, a generation later. And he had a much different opinion. You'll see it right there. The entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation stands or falls with the confession of God's trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant. So two very different opinions about how important the doctrine of the Trinity is or isn't. Now, a bit of a spoiler alert here. I'm with Bavink. I think it's pretty important. Um, in fact, I, I, I 
come right alongside Bobby and can say, I think it sits right at the very heart of our faith. And so, it ought to be something that we spend a few minutes thinking about together. To give some structure to our time, um, I want to suggest that there are at least three things. It's not accidental, right? Trinity, three things. Three things that we might take away tonight about what the doctrine of the Trinity does or why it's important. One is that I think it identifies the God of the gospel, identifies the God of the gospel, it affirms the integrity of the gospel, and it grounds the gospel in eternity. Now, this is a these three points here, I'm going to walk through each one with some level of kind of depth, I think. I'm going to warn you in advance, they each get a, a little bit harder to, to sort of wrestle with as we go. So the first one's going to be, uh, you're going, okay, maybe I'm tracking. Point number two, you're going to go, a uh, bit weird. And then point number three, uh, you might be lost completely. But that's going to be all right. Um, to do this work, to try to help you affirm the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, we're going to have to do a few things. We're going to have to do some work with the, with the scriptures. We're going to do some work in history. And then we're going to do something called theology at the very end. And then it's going to go exactly in that order. All right, buckle up. So, doctrine of the Trinity. Let's get, let's get something out on the table right away. When I say that the doctrine of the Trinity um, is something that identifies God, you might go, well, that sounds important. We probably want to do that. I need to come clean with you and tell you that the, the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Is that disconcerting for anyone? It's not in English, not in Greek, not in Hebrew. No, not, Bible wasn't written in Latin, but not in Latin. It is a Latin word. It has roots in Latin, but it, it came about 100 years after the Bible was sort of finished being written. Um, and some of you might go, well, that seems odd. Here, if this is right at the heart of our faith, shouldn't it be front and center in the Bible? I'll leave you with that for a second. Let's get, it gets worse. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is not explicitly taught in the Bible. Now, here's where you ought to be losing your mind, Right? What? How, how is it not taught in the Bible? Hear me very carefully. I think the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't think it teaches it explicitly. Let me back this up here for a minute. Where am I? This. This is what I want you to see. Does this look like any passage of, of Scripture you've ever read before? The answer is no. It doesn't. It's, it's, it's not. There, you, you can't chapter and verse that particular sentence. Frankly, you can't chapter and verse any one of those sentences. So this formulation here that about five minutes ago you said, yeah, I believe that. I think that's probably true. Nowhere is it explicitly in these words mapped out or laid out for us like this. So now all of a sudden... My guess is you're a little bit more with Rachel, wondering if it's not explicitly taught in the Bible, then how important is it? Like I said, it's crucially important. It identifies the God of the gospel. And why would it, how does it identify the God of the gospel? When we talk about God, um, 
It's kind of a vague concept. If I were to go out on the street and just ask somebody, I'm not, I don't have plans to do this, but if I were to go out on the, on the street and just ask somebody, do you believe in God? Or maybe a relative or a neighbor or a friend, do you believe in God? You have about a 50% chance of them saying yes in this country as far as the latest statistics are concerned. About 50% of the people in the UK uh, affirm some kind of belief in God. But then if you ask them to explain, well, tell me a little bit about more of this God that you believe in, uh, it gets real vague real quick. Well, you know, I believe there's some kind of higher power or I believe in an almighty, all-knowing being or some spiritual presence. Yeah, you, you might know people who affirm those kinds of things about God. You yourself might affirm some of those things about God. The deal is, though, lots of religions, lots and all kinds of religions can say, I believe in a higher power. I believe in a spiritual presence that doesn't necessarily identify the God of Scripture or the God of the gospel. And so to talk about Father, Son, and Spirit is to begin to get more specific about who it is this God is that we worship. Um, all right, so if it's not explicitly taught, then what is going on? How do we arrive at a doctrine of the Trinity? So the doctrine of the Trinity, as, as you can see there, what I'm calling, not just me, other people call it this too, uh, a deduced doctrine, a deduced Christian truth. It means if you sit with the scriptures long enough and kind of take it fully on board, then the implications of what you were reading there lead you to the conclusion that something of like what we just affirmed a few slides back must be true about God. Now I say, if you sit with it long enough, it's not like you go home tonight, open up your Bible, spend about a half an hour reading through it and go, yeah, okay, I think I've got it. And the doctrine of the Trinity, just like it was spelled out for me this evening, all makes sense to me now. It took a period of time in the church's history to wrestle with the scriptures centuries. We'll say three. How about that? 300 years for the, for the church to really kind of map out what it is that they understood to be true about the nature of God and it's God's triune existence. So it's a deduced doctrine, and yet it's an essential aspect of Christian faith. All right. I'm going to have to move quickly here. A few of my students, by the way, are in the room, and they are, know that I'm notorious for taking way more time than I was given. So I'm going to try to move pretty quickly here. Um, Trinity is an essential aspect of Christian faith. If it's an essential aspect, then, then we want to find something. The scriptures must bear witness in some way or sense. And if I asked you, where would you go in the Bible to begin to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, to begin to get kind of a handle on understanding the Trinity. You might be able to think of a few places. I'm not going to ask you because we don't have enough time for that kind of back and forth right now. I'm going to just tell you a few of the places. Here's this one, pretty famous. It's a Jesus baptism. This particular one's recorded in Matthew chapter 3. I won't read everything, but in Matthew chapter 3, you see mention of Jesus. You see mention of the Spirit of God. And you see mention of a voice from heaven. One might be led to believe that's identifying three mm, divine beings in some sense. Three interesting beings are being named together. But not necessarily, right? That doesn't, these 
This doesn't say Jesus was the Son of God. It doesn't say that in this verse. Fully divine in this very same way that God the Father was. Nor is it giving any new information about the Spirit of God or even necessarily naming who this voice is from heaven. It's highly suggestive, right? But it isn't necessarily the doctrine of the Trinity. Let's go on. Here's another one. Another real famous one. Um, and end of Matthew. All probably heard a sermon or two about this, right? The Great Commission. And it says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, here we're getting a little bit more crystallized, right? Each, say, member or person of the Trinity is explicitly named. But is that formula that we had up earlier, each one of these persons is fully divine. Each one of these are co-equal, co-eternal, that kind of language. And yet there's only one God that doesn't say all that, not in so many words, on this particular thing. Again, highly suggestive, highly suggestive, but not necessarily ultimately conclusive. We can go on. You've got another one here, 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus Christ, the love of God, communion of the Holy Spirit, again in 1 Corinthians, but it's God who establishes you in Christ. So you can, part of what you're seeing here is a pattern. A pattern showing up in Scripture of these figures being named together. Again, not an explicit doctrine of the Trinity just yet, but highly, highly suggestive. All right, so if that's what's going on, what are we to make of what it is that's happening in the Bible? I'm going to put a fancy word up for you here. What do we find in the Bible? Not necessarily a doctrine of the Trinity, but a proto-Trinitarian grammar. Proto, say it all together, proto-Trinitarian grammar. Basically what you're saying is you're, you're finding the beginnings of a doctrine of the Trinity in Scripture. And like I said, if you sit with it long enough, maybe centuries, then you arrive at something that looks very much like what we were affirming before. Um, Yet another example, the church. So that was kind of what we see in Scripture. The church very, very early on grabbed a hold of this pattern that they recognized in Scripture, and they began to use it in their own uh, worship and kind of teaching about the faith. This, don't, don't worry about all the words on the screen and reading them and our understanding them. I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about it. This is something called the rule of faith. And it emerged very quickly after Jesus and the apostles and kind of the closing of the, what we call closing of the canon um, in, the, say, the first century. By the second century, they were already having this kind of pattern of affirming their faith in this way. And what I want you to notice is that it is, I'll, I'll call it tripartite. Here again, we don't have the actual affirmations of Jesus was co-eternal with God, fully God in the very same way the Father was God, and the Holy Spirit also fully God in the same way that the Father and the Son are God. But instead what you have is a continuation of the pattern that was already sort of suggested to us in the scriptures. And so this, this this guy named Irenaeus, he's quoting, kind of referring back to this. So it's already in existence, but Irenaeus didn't invent it. They were, the churches were already using this as a pattern for their worship and for their affirmation about what it was they believed together. Okay, we'll pause there. Not going to take questions, but just think about it. The doctrine of the Trinity, one of the things that it does is it begins to specify, it identifies who it is that the, God, the, that the, that the scriptures are talking about when they talk about God. 
Second thing is that it affirms the integrity of the gospel. This is where we get to the history bit. Um, Anyone know who this is? You probably don't. It's a a guy by the name of Arius. Arius. Anyone ever hear the name Arius before? Okay, about three or four people, Um, which is not surprising. There's no reason for you to have heard of Arius. Uh, Arius was a chap in the fourth century, and he he was a, uh, had some teachings about who God was, and particularly who Jesus was, that were a bit controversial. So controversial that the controversy gets named after him, the Arian controversy. So for, what, 1,600 years now, this chap has been responsible for what some consider to be maybe the greatest heresy in the history of the church. I feel very bad for Arius. Um, I'm not saying I support heresy. I I genuinely don't. But I'm going to help you understand a little bit more of where Arius was coming from. Uh, and what was going on. There's a lot going on on this slide, but let me see if I can walk you through it pretty quickly here. Arius was a, just a, a Christian minister around the fourth century doing his thing, and he was reading his Bible just like any Christian would have been doing, and particularly anyone who has to teach the faith to other people. And he was arriving at some conclusions about who Jesus was that weren't necessarily what other people were affirming about who Jesus was. And to give you a bit of background, Arius, the, the, the philosophy of the age... Every age has a philosophy. This one does too. I won't go into talking to you about what our philosophy is. But every, philosophy, every age or culture has a philosophy. And the particular one in which Arius was coming out of was um, basically Greek Platonism. It was all the rage back in the 4th century. And um, one of the things that is strongly affirmed in Platonism, any philosophy majors um, in here? Yeah, okay. So you'll, you'll know this. One of the things that's sometimes very strongly affirmed in Platonism is, is this strong dualism between spirit and matter. Spirit and matter. And spirit's the good stuff. It's the pure stuff. And matter is kind of a degradation of. It's like, eh, matter's okay. That's the best they can say about what matter is. And so you, but there's a strong divide, spirit and matter. And it keeps them separate. So the problem with that, though, is if there's such a strong divide between spirit and matter, how do you explain the existence of matter? Where did matter come from? You go, well, I mean, if you're like me, you go, well, spirit just makes matter. No, not on Plato's, um, not on this kind of Platonic thought. It's because how can the spirit sully itself, dirty itself with getting involved in, in creation and matter? No, it can't do that. So instead, what they affirm kind of these Platonists, is that there is an intermediary, an intermediary that's created kind of like God and kind of like creation and matter um, that stands between and therefore God's not directly responsible for creation, but the spirit, the matter comes from this intermediary figure. I know this is all super exciting, right? But you have to understand this in order to understand Arius. So this is what Arius is. He can't imagine a world in which matter comes into existence that God directly creates. There has to be an intermediary. And then he's reading his Bible. He comes across things like First John. And, oh, look, the Logos is in there, the Word. The Word was with God. Didn't necessarily pay enough attention to the word was God, but the word was with God. So maybe this logos thing, this second person uh, or whoever it is, who's Jesus, is this intermediary figure. Not quite God. Almost God, but not quite God. And therefore, this individual is the one who can therefore be responsible for bringing creation about. Now, 
again, I, I tell you, I feel a little bit sorry for Arius. He's just reading his Bible, and he's trying to do the best job he can in reading his Bible. He reads a verse like uh, Colossians 1.15 that names Jesus as the firstborn of creation. And Arius goes, see, I told you. Jesus, there was a time when Jesus wasn't. He was the firstborn, and therefore everything else can be born after him. Now, don't, I, I'm not trying to convince you all to become Arians. That would be bad on several fronts, um, especially considering that you've kind of invited a guest in to speak to, to you about all of this. But I do think there can be some sympathy there. He's trying to figure it out, and yet the church ended up saying, sorry, Arius, this isn't, this isn't going to cut it. And here's why. This leaves open the question of what kind of deity is, is Jesus? Let's do it this way. Kind of talk about it like we did. There's a strong divide between spirit and matter or God and creation. And so in Arius' account, where does Jesus show up on this little chart over here? I'm not going to ask you to figure it, I mean, sit with it too long. I'm just going to show you. It's right there. Right up to the line, almost God, almost spirit, almost eternal, uncreated, but firstborn. By the way, let me just, other people translate firstborn differently. It's not about a temporal thing, right? It's about being a preeminent one. The firstborn meaning a status, not some kind of sequence in time. So don't get too, don't get too caught up on that uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Anyway, Arius says, Jesus is almost God, but not quite God. Well, that's not going to fly for the early church. And, there's, and you might be thinking, why doesn't that fly for the early church? Another chap comes along. This guy, you may have heard of or may not have, but his name is Athanasius of Alexandria. Alexandria was in what we now call Egypt. So, and this is, it was a hotbed of theological activity. Arius was from around there too. By the way, uh, most of the good theology that was happening in the first three or four centuries was in North Africa. Anytime someone tries to sort of explain to you that Christianity is a European religion, you need to remember, actually no, in the earliest days, the very, very best theology was being done by people of North African, um, well, pr provenance anyway. All right, so Athanasius, he's about a generation after Arius or kind of contemporary with Arius, and he's saying, that's not going to cut it. And here's why it doesn't cut it. Scripture affirms that Jesus saves. They... Athanasius is reading the Bible, and clearly, again and again and again, uh, the affirmation is Jesus saves humanity, saves the world. Um, and because of that, we, are, we worship Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now, if I was to go back to that other, well, I'll go back to a different slide in a second, but on that kind of divide, now, now in his mind, he's going, now, if we're worshiping Jesus as the Savior, and only God can save, right? Because you've got this idea that, say, if in creation, like a, a, a human being, I can't save anybody else. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm broken and frail and sinful, just like the rest of you. I'm, I have no capacity for being someone else's savior. So this, the, the, the logical conclusion is only God can save. That's, where the, that's what the church was affirming from the very beginning. Only God saves. And if Jesus saves, that puts Jesus in a class of his own. So, Athanasius says, in, in order for the gospel to make sense, Jesus has to be not on this side, but fully on this side of the equation. 
Jesus has to be fully God. Now, that might, that's going to rattle some feathers a little bit, but that has to be, and, and the scriptures testify that in many different ways, but Athanasius is saying, Jesus is on the fully God side of the equation. So if they have to spend another hundred years figuring out, well, if Jesus is fully on the God side of the equation, then how, how do we make sense of his humanity? How do those two things coexist? And we'll talk about that at a different time. Um, but not tonight. Fully, we just need to get that Jesus is fully God. This was settled in around 325, early, er, real early in the church's life and has been affirmed since then by most denominations that there's every, in all parts of the world, all kinds of different sorts of Christian expressions universally affirm that Jesus is co-equal with God the Father. Not one bit less. In fact, the debate set, came to, uh, they, they got this kind of conference together where they have all the theology nerds sort of gathered up and they're, they're saying, let's hash this out. Let's get it, let's get it, get something down on paper that we can kind of agree that we're affirming together. What is it? Is Jesus the same as God, like Athanasius is saying? Or is Jesus like God, almost God, like Arius is saying? They had two options to go with. The first one was, uh, here's a little bit of Greek for you tonight. You'll get more Greek, I think, maybe next, next week. But homoousios, homoousios, which means of the same substance. That affirms same as God. Are we going to use that word to describe who Jesus is? Or... Are we going to go with this other word that Arius is suggesting, homoousios, almost like God? The difference is one letter. It's that iota there. And some would say, and I think rightly so, the gospel hangs, the gospel hangs on whether it's homoousios or homoousios. And that homoousios affirms the integrity of the gospel because only God saves. And therefore, if Jesus is the Savior, then Jesus is also God. This got formalized in all kinds of ways. And I'll just show you, this is another creed. Creeds, by the way, a lot of you won't have experience with creeds in the past. They're just sort of summaries of what it is that the church is believing. And there's a number of creeds, especially early on in the church's life, where they really were trying to bang out what is it that we affirm together about our, our Christian belief. And so they're just ways of sort of summarizing. Here's what we agree and believe together. This Athanasian creed, uh, picked up on the language of same. And you can see here, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, and their majesty co-eternal. So you're getting much closer now, by the way, to that original sort of slide that I had up there, all God, one God, all equal, that kind of language is beginning to crop up. All right. Now, I wish that it would have gotten settled there once and for all, but it didn't get settled once and for all. Um, there, people still fall into error. They did back then in the centuries immediately after, and they still do today. And there's different two, there's lots of ways people can get, get this wrong, um, but there's two main ways in the history of the church that this has been gotten wrong. And I say in the history and in our expression of church today as well. The first one is um, something called tritheism tritheism. It's the belief in three gods. And what I'm talking about there is it's an overemphasis on the distinct persons of the Trinity to the detriment of 
the singularity of God, of the unity of God, of the oneness of God. And if I was just to be kind of hot take, I think lots of evangelical churches uh, today are kind of fall into the mistake of being tritheistic, affirming three gods as opposed to these are all different persons uh, of, of God. I'm going to come back to that word persons in a minute because I said it's problematic. The reason why I think we fall into tritheism often, so often is that because of this thorny language of persons. When we think of a person, we think of you and me and you and you. And if there's three persons, that's three distinct persons in, in all have an integrity all on their own. And therefore, it kind of creeps back into the, our understanding of what the Trinity is and who God is. Is that, yeah, it's kind of like a community of persons. They've got to get together and make decisions together or something like that. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God with three. Um, and we always reach for language at just this place. Persons, manifestations. Uh, you'll see that there's another error that comes. And, and so if you're going to try to avoid that, then the other possibility is something called modalism. Tritheism and modalism. Um, and modalism makes the opposite error. It overstates the singularity of God to the, to the detriment of God's threeness. So when your friend says, yeah, I believe in God, that could be, they don't necessarily have to believe in Jesus or the Holy Spirit. They just kind of have this general vague notion of a singular God that is kind of uniform in all of God's properties, but it doesn't allow for the kind of diversity or distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity. All right, tracking with me so far? Yeah, okay. Now, to kind of bring it home, you, you might think, well, if I'm trying to wrap my head around it, what are some possibilities on kind of getting a grip and that we, we reach for different kinds of analogies for the Trinity almost instinctively? Because we want to understand it. We really do. And so these are some of the very common ones that get uh, trotted out here. What, 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 what do I have here on the screen? Yep, so H2O in, in three different forms, right? Right? But here's the problem. Is that if you have a guess, which of the errors from the previous screen does this fall into? Is it tritheism or modalism? If you're, if you're thinking modalism, you're thinking in the right track. It's that this one thing just sometimes looks like this, sometimes looks like this, and sometimes looks like this. But it doesn't, it's not able to affirm the complexity of all of it together at one time. Um, or here's another one. Maybe you've seen this one. This is a clover. I don't, there's no mystery about what this is. And so some people get real romantic about, yeah, the Trinity's kind of like a, a clover. There's three parts to it, but it's one clover. The problem is, is no single part of the clover is, encompasses the whole of the clover, and you know, it's three different pieces of the clover. And so if you were to identify a, a heresy attached to this, what might it be? It's the other one. It's tritheism. It's that there's parts to God, that God is composed of three different sections or something like that, which is not the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, a, it's more um, integrated than that. Here's maybe my most favorite, not just because it's me. That is me, by the way. Um, there's me as a young, with my, with my pop there as a young lad. There's me with my beloved. And then there's me with my whole family. The reason, this, isn't, this is one we would want to go for, isn't it, right? I am one person 
And yet I have three roles. I am a son sometimes. I am a husband sometimes. I am a father sometimes. Not even sometimes. I'm actually, well, there was a time when I wasn't a husband. This is where it really gets murky because there was a time when I wasn't a husband. There was a time when I wasn't even a son and there was a time when I wasn't a father. That's not true about God. It's always been father, son, and spirit forever. And there was never a time when God wasn't father, son, and spirit. And yet, Nevertheless, this is a, it's an attractive possibility for trying to explain. Now, here's the deal. Um, analogies are fine as far as they go, right? But anytime you want to use them, and, and, and you can use them with your friends if that's what you're wanting to do to try to explain what the Trinity is, but you have to put all kinds of qualifiers around and say, it's kind of like this, but it's really not really exactly like this. It's a little bit like this, but it's not exactly like this. And the, one of the reasons why you have to do all that qualification is, is because... When we're talking about God, God is in a class of God's own. God is not like anything in creation. The word we use for it in theology talk is God is sui generis, singular, unlike anything else, unique. And therefore, you're not going to find an analogy that matches up just right to explain who God is. All right, quickly running out of time, but we'll come to this last one. And like I promised, this one's the one that you're going to go, I don't... I might be all right. I'm on board for the first two, but I'm not so sure about point number three. Point number three is it grounds the gospel in eternity. So I think to get at this, I might just ask, what's the gospel? There's lots of ways we could talk about it, and, 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 and churches express this using different kinds of words, but there is a basic kind of structure, and it's one that I'm going to suggest that most churches would go, look at this and go, yeah, I can affirm all of these things. The gospel is about the God who creates an entire cosmos, delights in that cosmos and, um, and desires to be in relationship with that cosmos. I'm going to use the word cosmos. I could talk about creates humans, but I want to suggest that the gospel is larger than humans. Um, God creates the cosmos and then God sends, you, you, a lot of you have been hanging around church long enough, so this will start to sound familiar. God sends the son to redeem not just humans, but the entire cosmos to um, God's self. Um, so to kind of bring the cosmos back into, human beings included, back into right relationship with God, the Father. And then God the Spirit is breathed out into the world to per, what, what's called perfect. Sometimes we use, when we want to talk about um, what God's doing in us, we talk about it as sanctification, to make me holy, to transform me. And that's what the role of the Spirit is in the church's life, is to bring to perfection or to completion that which was begun or begun and completed in Jesus, all right? But it's bringing it into actuality in our own experience now and into the future. So that's a, a very, and you're probably going, man, no one's, ever, no one's ever used those words to describe the gospel for me. But if you look at it long enough, you go, yeah, that's kind of what I understand the gospel to be. Um, now, that's one way to lay it out. Another way to lay it out is in, in diagram form. I just mentioned Father, Son, and Spirit in the last bit about what the gospel is. You could talk about it this way. Some of you are more kind of visually oriented. The Father sends the Son to reconcile, to redeem uh, the, the cosmos, the world, the universe, and us included. The Son does, in fact, achieve that and reconciles us to God the Father. And then... The Father and the Son breathe out the Spirit. It's interesting, like, you go, wait, wait a minute. So the Son comes from the Father, 
but then the Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. What's going on with that? That, that seems really strange. Again, they're just paying attention to Scripture. There's places in Scripture that talk about the Spirit of God, or when Jesus says, I will ask my Father to send the Spirit. So it sounds like, oh, the Spirit comes from, from God the Father. There's other places in Scripture that talk about the Spirit of Christ, or even where it says that Jesus breathed out His Spirit onto His followers. So, wait a minute. I thought it was coming from the Father. It looks like it's also coming from the Son. They're just paying attention to the grammar of Scripture, what the Scriptures are trying to affirm. So the Spirit is breathed out um, by the Father and the Son. And the Spirit, then, accomplishes, completes, perfects the work that God intended and got, got started in the beginning, and so brings all things back into completion, completes the work of the Son, and completes the work of creation and redemption. And so what you have here is this kind of mutuality of activity or work within the life of, of what God is trying to do in the world. This is in the world. Now, here's where it gets really strange. What's the Trinity? Well, we've been talking a lot about it. It's Father, Son, and Spirit, and then you've got that much. But if you want to think about it in a different, slightly different way, you can think about the Trinity as the story of God. God's own life on God's own. If creation, if you wanted to pretend like you could, that creation never existed, what would, what would be going on in God's own inner life? The creeds have some things to say about that. Same creed as we were looking at a little bit earlier, the one came out about the fourth century or so. And they say this, the Father is made of none. Why is the Father made of none? Because the Father is the creator. Neither, and it has to go on and specify, neither created nor begotten, eternal, uncreated. Okay, good, got that much. That's the story about the Father. The story of the Son is that the Son is of the Father alone. Strange, but nevertheless, that's what's being affirmed there, that the Father sends the Son. Not wants to be sure and make sure we're not doing the Aryan thing. Not made, not created, but begotten. Now here you're going, come on. Now, now we're just kind of plain semantics. How's begotten any different than created or made? The idea here is, is that the Son is eternally begotten. Eternally begotten. Comes from the Father, but does so eternally. There was never a beginning of time when, and that's what these words are trying to affirm, there was never a time when the Son wasn't. In God's eternal life, the Son always was, but was always as one who was coming from or begotten from the Father. And then the creed goes on to say some things about the Spirit. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son. There is a period in the church's history where that got a bit controversial, but nevertheless, Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. You're going, oh, why are we adding another word to make it even more complicated? Why couldn't we have just said begotten like the Son was begotten? Well, then, if we said it was begotten, that might suggest that God had two sons. So they needed to find other language to talk about what's going on with the Spirit. So if the Son is the begotten one, the Spirit is the eternally proceeding one. Eternally proceeding one. So just so you know, I'm, I, I show this to, to, so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. It's not like I, I thought, let me have a fancy talk about what it, what's going on in the inner life of God. This is what's been affirmed about God's life for centuries by all branches of the church, most branches of the church. Now, you're going, okay, wor words, words, words. Let's diagram this again. 
And this is just going to diagram what we just read off the, off the other thing. The father begets the son. The son and the, the father, or the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. The eagle-eyed among you know where this is going. The spirit completes the work. There's a lot of ways in which theologians have talked about the language that what it is that the Spirit's role is in the life of God. Sometimes it's called the bond, the completing bond, the perfecting of the life, of the inner, of the inner life of the Trinity. Uh, sometimes they say that the love between the Father and the Son was so strong that that love itself becomes a third part, part, part is the wrong language, but nevertheless for what we're doing here, a third within the Trinity that has a, a life distinct of its own that completes the life in God. So you've got proceeding, begotten, proceeding. Now, what's, what's the point of all this? The point of all this is to show you that what God is doing in the world, sending the Son into the world to redeem the world to God's self, then together the, the, the Father and the Son sending the Spirit breathing the Spirit into the world to complete the work that was begun and then returning it all to, to the glory of God, that that just maps directly onto what's going on in God's own inner life for all eternity. Said another way, what God has done in the world is a reflection of God, of who God is eternally in God's own self. Here's why that's important. That your salvation, your salvation isn't, it's not on a, a shaky foundation. It is uh, guaranteed, it is grounded in who God has always been from all eternity. From all eternity, God has been the one who is the saving God. The one sending the Son and breathing the Spirit. In God's life for eternity, and so when God works Outside of God's self, it only makes sense that that mirrors the very life and character of God Himself. Okay, Whew. tracking still, just barely. I can tell by the looks on your faces. We're going to draw it to a close. Um, like I said, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is of utmost importance. Identifies who the God of the Gospel is. It affirms the integrity of the gospel and it grounds salvation, the gospel, your salvation, my salvation, in all of eternity, in the inner life of God from the very beginning. I'm not making this up, by the way. This is, you could say this is all in some ways a gloss on Ephesians chapter 1, where God knew from the very foundations before the earth was created, chosen that God was going to do this saving kind of work. All right. So do we need the doctrine of the Trinity? Here's Bob Inc. again. I'm not trying to draw attention to Bob Inc. I am trying to draw attention to the things that he was trying to affirm. Entire Christian belief depends in many ways on whether or not the doctrine of the Trinity holds true. If it doesn't hold true, then all of a sudden the things we say we believe about God about Jesus and about the Spirit begin to fall apart. And so therefore, our very salvation is in some ways attached to this. Now, here's the thing, my last word on this. Do you have to understand the Trinity in order to be saved? Absolutely not, right? I told you that the smartest people on the planet have been doing it for a long, long time, and they say, get to the end of it and say, 
This is our best guess. This is as good as we've got because this is what scripture has revealed and this is what the church has affirmed for. But, still mystery in some ways, your, your salvation isn't dependent on whether or not you can sort of spell out the ways in which the Trinity is, works. Nevertheless, nevertheless, what I'm suggesting to you is that who God is in God's self eternally guarantees, secures um, your salvation and my salvation, and not just our salvation, but the entire world, the cosmos. Okay, I think I'll end it there. Let me say a quick word of prayer, and then we'll launch into the things that you guys are going to get up to. Father God, we give thanks for uh, this time we've had together. I give thanks for these people who have so patiently um, sat and wrestled with some really difficult ideas, many of which would have been brand new and a bit confusing, and yet nevertheless persevered. Father, I pray that the things that were shared, Lord, would continue to yield fruit in people's lives as they continue to ponder and reflect on um, the truths about who you are. And Lord, we want to affirm the truth about you, who you are, that ultimately um, the Trinity doesn't have to serve any other purpose. If it's true, we simply want to affirm it together because it brings you glory and honor. And so we're asking this in Christ's name. Amen. But now it is time for our Q&A. So if anyone has a question, just pop your hand up and Toby is going to be running around like a maniac um, and coming to find you to deliver some questions. So we have some people ready to go already. All right. Nice and uh, Hi there, first of all, thank you very much. You were fantastic. Thank you for your time. That's the polite thing to say, isn't it? It, it is. <laughs> I don't do this very often. Anyway, um, my question is, uh, in Matthew 12, 30 to 32, uh, he speaks about the only unforgivable sin being blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, to paraphrase. Now, with such a direct rule, as you can interpret it, this is something you should not do against the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son are all encompassed, why is it that my, my blasphemy against the Son and the Father may be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit if they are all one encompassed entity? Just an easy one to yeah, start off. A... <laughs> uh, great question. And as you and many of you will may, might know, there's not a, a, like, there's not a consensus around what the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Um, Therefore, it gets a little challenging to kind of directly address it. I think maybe one way to come at the question is, is to think about it in terms of the, the ways I was spelling out, we'll call them, or what theologians have sometimes called the operations of the Trinity. So if the Father has a certain kind of work, and the Son has a certain kind of work, and the Spirit has a certain kind of work. Now, of course, you have to stay steer clear because pretty quickly you can get into that tritheistic um, heresy saying, oh, they each have a distinct work. Look, three gods, each doing a different thing. Theologians have wanted to say, similar to what you're trying to affirm is, no, this, the scriptures affirm, right? They want to talk about the work the Spirit does, but the theologians come back on the back of it and say, but anything that the Spirit does involves fully the work of both the Father and the Son as well. Some, same for the Son, same for the Father. That nothing that any of them do is done without the other. How could it be? All right? But if one possibility, we'll, we'll call it that, about what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, is it's, it's in some ways denying the, the work that the Spirit is trying to accomplish, that perfecting, sanctifying kind of work. And so that might be why it finds purchase at just that place is, and I think in the context it might make sense, is that if you've affirmed like faith in, in God and the life that God has 
for you and called you into, and then you deny it, well then, the work of God that you are denying is the work that the Spirit does, the sanctifying, perfecting work of the Spirit. So that's one, that's one, one stab at it, but um, yeah, yeah. Sweet. Any more questions? There's one down here at the front. Hi. Um, that's loud. Um, I know that you said that this was like a bit for another time, but I feel like it's kind of part of understanding the Trinity. Sure. So if you could be like the BBC bite-sized version of it. Like, um, I guess it's the thing about Jesus being fully God and fully human, and how do we sort of make sense of that in a nutshell? Yeah. Good, good. It's good. Um, <laughs> when you have me back next time for a lecture on Christo <laughs> what's called Christology, we can get really into it. But maybe even from what I was talking about already today, where um, just in the historical development of, it, it, what I didn't point out is so often theological clarity comes off the back of some controversy or anytime it looks like there is a, a part of the church that is beginning to affirm something that the church collective hasn't held together, even if they haven't been sort of super explicit about, we all believe this, right? We all believe this. They just, there's this kind of natural sense and we're, we're following and worshiping God. And so the, the interesting part in the development is, is um, I mean, it just seems quite obvious, right, that Jesus was a human being. He was, in fact, a human, walking around, eating food, doing that stuff. So the, the early parts of trying to figure out who is Jesus in relation to God, the Father, and, and the Spirit was how do we come to the kind of affirmations we need to make about Jesus's divinity? So that was the controversy in those early centuries where they were saying, um, the Arius thing, maybe not quite fully divine, clearly a human being, so maybe not quite fully divine. And then the church kind of settled on, no, fully divine. So once you've settled that, then the question becomes, well, wait a minute now, what about the humanity of Jesus? And so for, it took about another hundred years for them to kind of knock back and forth. Is, is he part man? Is he part God? And they came back at a council called Chalcedon and said, no, not part man, part God, fully God, fully man. And they go, well, wait a minute. How does 100% and 100% add up? And they go, we don't know, but we know we have to affirm both of those things. So much of theology is not trying to like solve puzzles. It's just trying to follow the witness of scripture and say, based on scripture, we know we have to affirm this and we know we have to affirm this. We don't know how those things can sometimes feel like a bit like a paradox. And yet, nevertheless, we affirm them both together full, uh, kind of full-throatedly. So that's kind of the quick version of what was leading up to this council called Chalcedon, where they wanted to make the kind of the, what we call an orthodox affirmation of who Jesus was. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, where are the other questions in the room? I know I've seen a few. There's one there. Hi. Um, I kind of, I get the whole Jesus was like the begotten thing, but if, where does the birth, his birth fit into that? And how, if he wasn't begotten, does that kind of fit Great. in with the picture? Like, does that make Mary... I don't, yeah, how does that kind of all fit together? So many good questions in that one question. Um, the way I told the story was that first we had these ideas, these theological ideas about 
who God is in God's own life and kind of the Father, the Son begotten. And this is in eternity, right? And so that was the point I was trying to make, that it wasn't, there wasn't a point in God's life where the Son didn't exist, eternally begotten, begotten forever. Now you're going, why would they even, what would even lead them to think that that is what, something we need to affirm? Another way is to think about it, reading it backwards. They're, they're looking at the ways in which God works in the world, maybe even along with the story of Scripture, and it becomes quite evident that the Son is born, right, in time. But what they would do is say, well, if the Son wasn't, if the Son was born in time, does that mean that there was a time in God's life when the Son wasn't? And they sat with that for a long time and said, that can't be possible. It was eternal. It, the Son is eternal in the same way that the Father and the Spirit are eternal. But what, the, what we can deduce from looking at the way God works in the kind of the narrative of sometimes what's called salvation history, if the son is born in time, that's suggestive of what the son's relationship to the father has been for all time, eternally born. Um, no, that's, it gets real confusing, but that's, that's the logic. It's not from, we have ideas about God, and then we kind of press them down onto um, making it work for the story of, of salvation. It's actually, we're reading the story of salvation, and then reading that back into the life of God, but having to make kind of a, a, a key change, if you will, because God is eternal. God's not temporal um, in the way that we are temporal. And so if God is an eternal God, what are, the, what are the kinds of things we have to affirm about the Son's eternal begottenness? Yes, he was born in time, which maybe suggests he's born forever, but you can't be born forever. You're just, that's why they landed on the language eternally begotten. Yeah. Sorry, that doesn't really clear it up much, but that's, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> right, I think there was another one further back there, and then we'll wrap around to the front again if anyone has any down here. How do you reconcile um, the penal substitutional atonement oh, with, like, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, a separation of the Son and the Father, but then being one. Okay, great, great, <laughs> great question. I was just hoping someone would ask me about penal substitutionary atonement tonight. Um, <sighs> Sorry. Heresy at every turn. Um, I can't affirm that the Father was and the son were ever separated. Not, not in God's inner life. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. To separate God from, if there was a true separation between the father and the son, then actually we wouldn't be here. All of existence would unravel. It just can't be. Um, now, that's in the eternal life of God, right? There can't be in the eternal life. Of, that would be to just rip God God's self apart, and if God's self becomes separated from God's self in some weird, how would, it sounds bizarre, I, like I said, heresy at every turn, but if that happens, then, then all, of, all of existence just goes, I think. Therefore, what are we seeing in the narrative of Scripture is a kind of um, 
dramatic enactment of it, and you don't necessarily have to affirm that what happens, everything that happens in the, the narrative is a directly mapped onto, that's actually saying a, a, a statement about God's own inner life. So the human Jesus maybe felt kind of separation, felt forsaken, abandoned, but there's a lot going on in that passage, and I think a lot of theologians have overread maybe into what was going on in that critical moment. It's being quoted from a psalm, and so the whole context of the psalm needs to be taken on board to understand what it is that is being evoked at that, at that particular time. And who Jesus' identity as true Israel, there's lots and lots going on, and so I don't necessarily know that we have to read it as uh, the Trinity was ruptured for a period of time. Um, but as with all things the theology, there are people who will disagree with that and have a, have a different read on that, and we just kind of live with some of those tensions. But that's where I, that's where I come out on it. Thank you. That was you. a bit mind-blowing for me. Um, don't know if it was anyone else. Is there anyone at the back of the room while Toby's there who has a question? No? Great. Do you want to come around this way? If we go to Toby and then Victoria. And that's probably all we have time for so if anyone has a secret last question let me know thanks tidy yep um when you were talking about salvation history mm. um in our like christian understanding if that ex extends to hebrew bible where in hebrew bible oh, i was about genesis the whole like let us good. what are your thoughts about trinity appearing in hebrew bible history good it's a great question and in my little whistle-stop tour through Scripture, you'll notice that I didn't do any Old Testament. That is kind of intentional. I was going maybe for the more explicit passages in Scripture that seem to evoke Trinitarian language. And that um, you, I think you can go to the Old Testament. It's a little... Um, it's a little murkier there. And my Old Testament colleagues would say... Slow, slow your roll just a little bit because you're trying to read something into the Old Testament that maybe isn't as evident as you would like for it to believe. Nevertheless, to the great disappointment of my Old Testament colleagues, I do think that the Old Testament has at least more of the proto-Trinitarian grammar. So that you'll see the Spirit of God appearing in a number of places. If you're looking for where, I mean, a lot of theologians think that any theophany, that's another big word for you. Any appearance of God in the, in the Old Testament is actually, that's evoking the sun. So whether it's sometimes wisdom is, is sometimes thought of being as kind of the second person. But it, it, frankly, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a reach, but there are hints that there is that same kind of complexity about God, who God's existence is. And it's, let me give you a little bit more of the story. So you'll probably know that the Jewish people, um, they were idolatrous all over the place, believing in a lot of gods. And God would have to come back to them again and again, say, no, there's only one God. Okay, 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 there's only one God. There's only one God. So that was a story that was beat into them again and again and again. Um, and then, so kind of what we call monotheism was sort of established after lots of pain and trial. And then you have Jesus showing up on the scene and it becomes, wait a minute, things just got complicated again. Um, and so it introduces a complexity to God that, um, that they maybe weren't able to sort of reconcile. And yet, I would say, it was there and astute, like 
uh, Hebrew theologians would have said, yeah, there is a kind of um, distinctiveness in the life of God that, uh, that we find in scriptures. It's not uniform all the way down. And so spirit of God, pillars of smoke and fire, burning bushes, all these kinds of things become are opportunities to think more, more um, I don't know, complicate who it is that this God is that they are worshiping. Thank That's you. about the best thing. And I, I'll leave the Genesis text alone because that, that might come back again in a minute. Davey. Um, can I ask just one question? Oh, no, question? I'm in trouble now. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, all, it's fa- absolutely fascinating and slightly mind-blowing. I think we're all surprised. So I guess it, it links to that. Um, you've talked a lot about from a theological point of view and you're a theologian, but you're also a pastor and, and, and a Christian as a person. Tell us, I'd love to know how... Um, first, the doctrine of the tr- Trinity is quite confusing, but in what way is it enriching yep. to your faith personally? How does it enrich your good. connection with God? Oh, good. A um, few ways. One is um, if the scriptures want to identify God in this way, teach us that this is the way in which God is, then. Um, delving deeper into the truth about who God is, is in some ways for me its own reward. Um, And so it's entering into the life. That's one way, is it's just knowing more fully this God that's been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture and in the the lived experience of the church early on and through some some, uh, centuries. So that's one way, is pressing in closer to an understanding. Now, the other way is almost in the exact opposite direction, is, is to affirm the, mis- the mysteriousness of God. Um, if you find yourself confused, I want to say it again. That's okay. That's to be expected. Now, some, the, the, those things sit in some tension with one another because uh, I didn't have this. I sometimes have a slide that says um, that the that God is not a problem to be solved, but a, or the Trinity is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be worshipped. And it's part of what it affirms for me is when I come up to the limits of language about expressing who God is, is it helps me to affirm the, the very otherness, that God is bigger and grander and can't be encapsulated in, in my feeble attempts to try. You go, yeah, but you, you spent a whole hour trying to kind of get a, wrestle a, a kind of a, the Trinity into a headlock. And I'd be like, uh, I was trying to explicate what I think the scriptures and what I think the tradition of the church has wanted to affirm over some time and help all of us gain kind of a fuller appreciation for that, while at the same time recognizing we're going to come to our limits on this as the church has always come to our limits. Another way you could teach the doctrine of the Trinity is to say, um, you're actually only ever instructed on what you can't say about it. God's not like this. God's not like this. God's not like, God's not three in the way that you think God's three. God's not one in the way you think God's one. And part of what that does is, is affirm the very otherness, the majesty, or even if we want to say it, the uniqueness and glory of God. So that's another way. And then that, that last bit about um, I genuinely think that the story of salvation is grounded in God's own life. And when I think about that, um, I move with assurance about God's work in my life and in the world. It provides hope. Um, And it's not dependent on me, on how I'm doing on any particular day in my life with God. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, soul. 
And yet, that's not what my salvation is anchored in. It's not anchored in me and how I'm doing with God. It's anchored in the reality of who God is and God's own self for all of eternity. And that is reassuring, to say the least. Um, so those are just a few of the ways. I'm sure there's more. Amazing. Thank you very much. We thank Tido again. Oh, yeah. That's been... I've definitely found it so insightful this evening and have a lot to go away and think about at different times. Um, but I was just wondering, would you be able to close for us in prayer? Would you pray for us? Yeah, please, happily. And folks, let me just say before I do, it's been such a pleasure. Um, I said it at the front, but you are to be commended for coming out on a night like this and, and wrestling with things that are really quite difficult. I wish more churches were doing this sort of thing. Um, I think the life, the vitality, and sort of the depth that, of what what we experience together would be enriched um, if, if more kinds of things like so again you're to be applauded your church is to be applauded for hosting this kind of thing it's been a real pleasure for me but let me pray uh, heavenly father we are grateful for the time we've been able to share in together and even as i was just saying a few minutes ago i'm so aware that we quickly and some at times bump up against the limits of our finitude of our inability to understand and comprehend, and yet you call us to it. You want to be in relationship with us, and if that's going to be the case, then we are going to grow in our appreciation for who you are and who you reveal yourself to be. Father, I pray for all of us that that would be a lifelong endeavor, that we would commit ourselves to wanting to know you in all of your beauty, in all of your glory, in all of your majesty, in all of your complexity, in the frustrations, um, in, in the pain even at times, Lord, that none of that is off limits to you. And so, God, we're grateful for the way you meet us, regardless of where we find ourselves. And, Lord, we ask that you would continue to just draw us further and further into your own life, one that you've enjoyed for eternity. Would you help us? Would you enable us? Would you um, continue to press on us to be able to participate in that um, eternal joy that you have in yourself? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.